welcome to the Transform Your Workplace podcast. Brandon Laws, as usual, we got Lacey Partipillow. You come on a lot, and we got Alicia Young here. We are going to talk about trends in HR and in the workplace. You know, every start of the new year, there's always like predictions and trends. So we're going to hop on that bandwagon. We're going to talk about some of that stuff. I actually put together a list, and you guys have seen this list. These are things that I've run across in either interviews, podcasts, articles, things that our clients have said, things that you guys have told me. And so I put together a list and I want you to tell me why you think it could be a trend or not a trend this year. And it might just be a trend in general, but maybe it's not going to be such a hot topic. So we're going to start with diversity and inclusion. So my gut is telling me there's been a lot of focus on diversity, but I think people are going to talk about inclusion a lot more as a main component to this whole diversity, inclusion, equity thing. I think it's going to be more focused on bringing groups in making sure other groups feel included rather than just, you know, marking the checkbox of let's bring in some diversity. It means a lot of different things. So Lacey, let's start with you. What do you think on that whole subject? I agree with you. I think employers have been focusing on diversity for a little while now, and they have at workforces where maybe they have started to bring in folks that haven't worked in their company before, and the workforce is getting more diverse. And I think the focus is going to shift into creating a workplace where all those people feel comfortable. So that focus on inclusion, I think, will be here for this year. I agree. I actually don't think that it's a trend. I think mm. that this will continue year over year over year, and it'll be a hot topic for many years to come, because I don't think that as many business, they're not there yet. So as much as we'd like to pretend like we are, I think there's still a lot of organizations that have a lot of work to do in this area. For improvement. I like the way you put it, Alicia. It's probably not a trend. I think it was a trend probably two, three, four years ago, right? But now that it's so ingrained in business, it's just the way we do business now. We make sure we have inclusion programs and that we're thinking about it because otherwise, you're not going to be an employer choice and people are going to go work for somebody else who does practice this on a regular there's, basis. There's an expectation now that employers are doing things around inclusion. It's no longer a, I hope we are, it's an expectation from the workforce. Yeah, I think that customers too of businesses expect it. So, you're going to want your employees to be reflective of your customers too. Great point. Love that. Let's move on. Performance reviews. We've been talking about this forever. It seems like nobody likes them. Everybody hates them. Everybody knows they're broken. You know, We still do them at Zenium. We still advise our clients on to do them. I don't think we have a perfect solution. I think you know, moving away from like an annual review or... I mean, that's the trend that we always hear about every single year. Do you think this year is going to be the year where we just finally put our foot down and say, we're scrapping them? I don't think so. The companies that I'm working with are still creating systems to recognize and reward performance. So we may be moving away from some of the traditional ways of doing reviews. I think time is really important. And so review programs and systems that take up a lot of time for supervisors and employees, maybe employers are going to look at ways to maybe reduce that time. But I don't see reviews going away. No, And I think that before reviews can even go away in an organization, there has to be enough day-to-day interactions and one-on-ones and performance feedback and coaching that takes place on a casual basis before you can even honestly start to pivot away from performance reviews. So I'm in hopes that some of the trends that we'll start to see is just more engagement at the day-to-day level. Following that, we'll be able to have a lot more creativity around how we manage performance reviews and what that process looks like. But I think for some reason, we're still missing a big chunk of what has to happen yeah. before we're able to kind of transition to a more progressive performance review system. 
what sticks out in my mind about what's broken about performance reviews is for one, it's once a year and goes under the guise of like the quantitative, like it's objective data, right? That you're getting scores in certain areas, but it's totally subjected by your manager. And that could vary from manager to manager if you're not training people the right way on performance reviews. So I want to get away from that. Like that's in my mind that it makes sense that it's more ongoing feedback. It's more objective if you can get that way what like do you have any solutions or ideas about that i think training managers on calibrating is really important and i think that gets missed like so, what what is a five like exactly give me the definition around what a score of a five is exactly and talking about employees in a confidential maybe manager meeting where we're really evaluating how folks are doing and getting feedback cross-functionally too i think that's important i think that's one way to get that objective feedback i've seen clients incorporate one-up reviews too. We do that at Zenium. So having the manager's manager take a look at the form before it's presented. And even though, you know, I've been doing reviews for a while, there's still good feedback that comes back when I'm sending, you know, my reviews forward. So I think just taking the time to do those best practices will be really important. I also believe that performance reviews, sometimes they do more harm than they do good. That's primarily because it's the manager doing their job. So if we aren't collaborating and having conversations frequently throughout the year, then there should be no surprises. And if we're not doing that and the employee's surprise, that does more damage to that relationship and that partnership between the employee and the team member. And sometimes you can't come back from that. So going back to kind of what we talked about a little bit ago, it goes back to these consistent one-on-ones, being a part of a team and showing that collaboration and bringing everything together literally on a weekly, monthly basis in order for us to change performance reviews. You're almost saying like the failure of the performance review or the very nature that an employee is surprised by some sort of feedback, whether it's positive or negative, is a failure of the manager or the system that they're working within. So if they're not doing ongoing performance management, that's the failure of management, leadership, all that. So we need to fix that problem. Yep. I agree. Okay. So I interviewed Amy Edmondson. She's a Harvard professor, author, wrote a couple books. One of them was about this idea of the fearless organization. There are people in the, like the Googles of the world, like they're rallying around this idea of psychological safety and having leaders that don't operate with fear, you know, fear-based culture. I don't know if you've heard that term, the psychological safety. If you hear clients talking about it, if you guys are talking about it as a team, is that going to be a trend for this year? Because I believe wholeheartedly it is an up and coming trend that people are going to be talking about. Yeah, I think it's coming up a lot. I think sometimes though, and maybe people aren't going to be happy with this response, but I think sometimes we sway kind of far to try to create this workplace that everybody feels comfortable and everybody feels included. And it can create this dynamic where people are walking on eggshells. And I think that we can optimistically try to create a workplace where all of our employees are comfortable and it's safe, but realistically, we're not obligated to do that. So I have a lot of companies that I'm talking to right now that the employees are asking for that. They're using that language. And the employer is sort of like, ugh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. I thought I was doing my best. We have these policies in place. And now I'm being asked to go above and beyond. Yeah, Lacey's right. Before psychological safety is able to really be embraced in a workforce, we have to make sure our management understands what that means. And Part of that is breaking down the barriers around what's okay to talk about and what's not okay to talk about. Employees should be able to walk into their manager's office and say, today's been a tough day for me. Yes. You know, and the manager should look at them and go, I'm sorry to hear that. You want to spend some time together? You want to take five and talk? 
unfortunately, sometimes, even myself included, sometimes we're running so fast in our day-to-day that we forget to just stop and look at the other person and say, I'm sorry, your day isn't going well. What's going on? You know, and so we have to learn to embrace those tough conversations. I may not like what I hear, but on the other hand, I would prefer to hear it and then be able to be a support system behind it. And I think that's where it starts. So safety, I think it's great that we talk about psychological safety, but I think it starts with us as individuals, allowing, being vulnerable with our own highs and lows. Right? Yeah, I was going to say like the work that Brene Brown does with vulnerability. I think it starts there. It gives leaders a chance to say, you know what, it's okay to be vulnerable because then the trickle down effect is that people feel okay speaking up when otherwise they'd have been fearful of it. So like, let's say there's something happening where I'm privy to it and I should speak up. In a fear-based culture, you wouldn't speak up because you're worried about losing your job or whatever it may be. Me Too movement's a prime example, right? where people now are starting to feel more comfortable calling it out. Whereas before in fear-based, like I'm going to lose my job or I'm going to be shamed or whatever it may be. So I think we're at the beginning of this thing. Pay equity is actually a great example of that. And I know that's on your list, Brandon, but you know, we're seeing more and more team members coming forward and saying, Hey, I don't know that I'm making the same as the person sitting next to me and why. And so being a leader in an organization, we have to be able to give the why, right? But that doesn't mean that that team member asking me that question is wrong. And it doesn't mean that it's bad. And I think that there's still a lot of growth for organizations to understanding that those conversations are now happening. And in order to create an environment that's safe, we have to be able to engage in those tough conversations. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Okay. So this idea of, especially with remote work nowadays, this idea of like butts and seats versus results. As much as that makes sense on the surface, I think a lot of us still have a long way to go as far as like this paradigm shift about like, oh, somebody's not here, they're not working. You know what I mean? Nowadays, people can work from anywhere and everything's becoming more digital. We have Microsoft Teams that we use. There's Skype, there's Zoom calls, you name it. The list goes on. You know, as a leader manager, what do you coach your employers to say like, it's about the results of the job, was in their job description. It's the results of what they're putting out versus saw that you came in an hour late. What's up with that? I think it goes back to what you said about having that one-on-one relationship with the employee, being able to communicate clearly what the expectations are so you can actually measure them. Because if people are working from home and don't have a really clear picture of what they're supposed to be working on, how am I supposed to even hold them accountable? You know, And I think that's why managers get uncomfortable by having people not be next to them in most cases, because they don't have a really great way of measuring what performance looks like. When you know what the output's supposed to be, when you're seeing that come in, whether they're next to you, down the hall, across the country, it shouldn't matter. Right. It's harder. It is much more difficult to manage remote team members. There's also a sense of they have to have their own internal drive too. Oh, 100%, so when yeah. you're working from home, the majority of the time, there has to be an internal drive within you to stay focused and on task. And so I think it's also finding the right remote workers too, or the right team members that can have more flex time and work from home, do different things and setting the expectations from the beginning of what you are going to monitor. I think allowing team members to be adults and treating them like adults is the number one thing we can start with. And that starts with not micromanaging the five minutes they were late. Yeah, exactly. You know, there are certain organizations that that five minutes does matter. You know, if you're in a retail establishment and you have to have those doors open exactly at nine o'clock in the morning, otherwise you get a fine, that means that that matters. 
production environments too where you actually have shifts and yeah. you need to relieve people absolutely <laughs> anything like that absolutely so it's taking each role in each job and each organization and trying to adapt to figure out what works and what doesn't yeah. work and then setting those expectations and why i even brought this up in the first place because there's a lot of white collar workers out there that they're behind a computer right and i think at one point we used to think like oh they're here they must be working right but that's just not always the case right that people bring their baggage with them to work and something may be going on mentally where it looks like they're working. They've got their desk in order. They're behind the computer, but they're typing something. They're doing something. They're typing like (laughs) sports scores in Google or whatever, you know, they're not actively working versus as a manager, how do you shift your mind to say, it doesn't matter if they're here or not, but the results are what speaks for themselves. You know, it's interesting because it's not just even remote workers. It's even team members that are here. There's a lot of distractions now in the workplace. So that can be how many text messages people get on their iPhones to how many personal calls, you know, how many team members walk up and have conversations, how many times I can walk down the hallway and talk to four people on the way to wherever I'm trying to go, you know, so there's just a lot of distractions. And just because you're in the office doesn't mean you're present Mm -hmm. the whole time. Yeah, that's true. I think not even just focusing on somebody who's remote 100% of the time, but if there's a way to allow some flexibility, some balance, because otherwise all that personal stuff comes to work and people are calling out for half days or full days because of one appointment when maybe working from home because you're on that side of town, maybe that would help. Traffic is terrible right now. So people wanting to avoid that and being able to flex their hours to come in a little later, leave a little earlier, those kinds of things. I think, you know, it's the intangible things that don't cost money that an employer can do to help even retain and attract people. And it's not about the work-life balance, right? It's really work-life integration. So we need to really focus on what does that integration actually mean? And what does work-life integration, what does that look like for people? We've gotten so caught up in work-life balance that I think the word balance is the wrong word. I think it's really integration. And I think we get the best out of people when we give flexibility and autonomy to be treated like adults. Perfectly said. Treat people like adults. And I think it transforms the culture. It's interesting over time, like I've been here 11 years at Zenium, Lacey, pretty much the same thing. Alicia, you've been here like 100 years or something like oh, that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Not nice. <laughs> no, no, I know. It's my cousin. Is that I inclusive? Can do that. No. <laughs> no, that's, that's true. So we've seen this evolution of the HR role, specifically in this consulting role. We've become HR business partners. We are business partners to, to clients. However, I think we've even started seeing this in organizations where HR people really want to see it at the table. And so coach people on how to become the business partners and what do they need to know? We know that this is an ongoing trend. I don't even need your perspective on whether this is a trend or not. I think we know it is. HR people want to see to the table. They probably deserve it, but not everybody's cut the same way. So give me some sense for what it takes. I'm going to go back to that trend comment. I don't think it's a trend. You don't? I don't because I think that HR has wanted a seat at the table for many, many years. I mean, back even when I started my career, we were talking about getting a seat at the table as HR folks in the field. So I don't think it's a trend. I think it's a reality of us trying to continue to make sure that we are valuable to the organization. And where I think that stands is I think that majority of organizations, they don't want HR first. They want leaders first and they want people with business acumen first with that HR. So when we talk about ourselves as an HR individual, we need to bring to the table those all three of those components versus just that HR technical. I think it's great to have HR technical. That's our world. You know, it's our bread and butter, quite frankly, right? But in order to get that seat at the table, 
if you don't have that leadership and that business acumen side of things, you're going to struggle. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's taking a genuine interest in the business, right? So understanding how the business operates so that you can create your programs and your strategy and whatever your plan might be so that it's aligned with the business vision and strategy and goals. And I think HR has been trying to do that. And I think, you know, when you're showing leadership and demonstrating business acumen, you're getting that information from, you know, your customer, from the president, the CEO, whoever it is that HR is reporting to. And then you can sort of tweak what your plan is to ensure it's compliant because that's the basic stuff so that it's producing results so the company can grow or expand or whatever those goals might be. I think one of the biggest challenges for probably HR people is if, especially if they're solo, like in-house HR person, they're expected to do compliance and systems and the strategy and, you know, all the people stuff. So how do you get strategic when you're like constantly in the weeds? So how do you go get business acumen? How do you talk like some of the executives at the table so you can actually sit there at some point? Like, where do you even go get that? I think it's understanding your business first, you know, so we have to, as HR folks, we have to understand how the business ticks. Where do we actually make money? Where do we lose money? Are we profitable? Are we not profitable? Where have we invested? Where have we not invested? So I think the start is just understanding how your current business ticks and understanding the financials behind that. Once you do, then you become even more relevant when you're making the HR decisions. So, you know, even myself as a leader here at Zenium, you know, me understanding how Zenium ticks is so important to when I need something for our team and I need to go and request it or ask for it, or I want to put together a proposal for a major change or shift. I need to understand the impact that it's going to have on the entire organization, not just my department. So I think that's how you start to get it. And once you have gotten that your own business down, then all of a sudden you'll start to notice other key executives and other leaders now see you as a thinking partner. And now all of a sudden we're in these conversations and we're engaged in these conversations and we're learning and they're learning too. Yeah. It's interesting because employees will think, oh, HR is on the behalf of the employer. And then employers will think, oh, they're so people focused. <laughs> it's like they're in this weird limbo spot. But I agree, like if you spend more time like understanding the business and then also, you know, working with the people, it's not going to be this or that. You're, no, it has to be somewhere in the middle. Of straddling both. that yeah. and trying to make an impact for both, advocating for both. Love it. Yeah. And you need to. Let's switch over to this topic that has been talked about a lot. This omnipresent AI automation, what does it mean? You know, a lot of economists will say, well, jobs will be replaced. Employees will freak out. Employers are trying to figure out how to use this AI and automation to make really good business decisions while obviously not cutting the workforce in half or whatever is going to happen. It's all noise, right? So where's this trend going? What do your clients talk about? It's real. It is real. Yeah. So in what ways are you seeing that? Yeah, I think that we need to be thinking about how to scale the business and use technology and AI to take us to the next level. I think in our world in HR, nothing's going to replace our voice and our presence when it comes to really tough conversations with employees or the culture, you know, engaging in culture initiatives and bringing people together from an inclusivity perspective. Mm -hmm. But it is real that there should be and there will be areas even in HR that will be automated. You can see it just in how many organizations have electronic onboarding already. You know, they don't necessarily want us sitting next to them. It's a better user user experience. The technology is good in a lot of ways. Yep. 
And then I think we're going to also see reporting on a lot of that. So, you know, we talk a lot about HR metrics and where organizations are going with metrics. And depending on the size of the organization, you're either really good at it. If you're large in the mid-sized market, mm-hmm. you probably dabble a little, but in the small market, you're not dabbling at all in metrics. So I think we'll be able to see a lot more decisions based on real metrics that affect the whole entire organization versus a small amount of things. You're talking about metrics. I explored a tool. I'm not going to name the name of this company because they're not a sponsor for this. No free pub, I think, is how we go here. But there's tools like this. It'll basically extract your data and make some predictive decisions. Not decisions, but it'll give you some predictions based on the variables, some regression analysis, all that all within a tool requires very little brain power on your point, but it's basically having like a data analyst at your fingertips. So I think we're going to see more. I think what AI and automation is doing is it's making technology so good to where you don't need these high level positions to analyze and crunch the numbers. As a leader, you could basically just look at the data and say, okay, a couple different outcomes might come out of this. Here's kind of a look back. Here's some forecasting and predictions. A system's doing that all for you. So I think it's going to be more about How do you pair your people using this technology in a really effective way to make decisions fast, but also thoughtfully? What do you think, Lace? I think when you're talking about the people and pairing them with the technology, I think about the new folks coming into the workforce that are... Digitally native? Totally (laughs) addicted to technology. And that's the language that they're using. And what I worry about is that with the focus on this, that we're going to lose this emotional intelligence that's so needed. And like you said, our jobs need that. We're, we will always have jobs until everybody's robots. I mean, it's <laughs> like true. we're going to be like bionic or as are long you as there's people, there robots? will always be HR. That's yes. what I say. Yes. So, but I just think that having these younger tech savvy employees coming into the workforce, it's going to increase the amount of technology because that's what they're demanding and it's what they're good at. But I just hope that it doesn't take away from the fact that relationships are still important and that employers are going to need that, I think, even more now than ever if folks are communicating with technology the way they are. Yeah. And I think to Lacey's point is what it means is that our jobs are going to shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's true of a lot of different industries out there that will engage with AI technology and different things that will happen. I don't necessarily think so many jobs are going to go away. They might, yeah. but they're going to open up other opportunities for us to shift our focus. Like in HR, we are going to see We'll need a lot more coaching and a lot more training and development around emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. So maybe we're not doing onboarding and benefits enrollments all the time. And those things are all automated and we can have a regression analysis around some of the decision making side of things. But you're still going to need an executive team to make those tough decisions, because even with regression analysis, where the problems are and where you should go, there's still a decision that has to be made. And that decision is typically going to be done by humans. Yep. So that leads into my next topic, which I want to shift over to compensation. Pay equity is one of those things where there is regression analysis happening with there because especially the Oregon laws, you're trying to figure out all these variables, gender, race, sexual orientation. Is that covered in there? I don't even know. It, it is. So. It it is. is. Okay. Yeah. so there's these columns and columns of data that we're extracting to figure out, okay, pay differences, job description, duties, all that stuff. Are there any like gaps? And I'm curious where this is all going, right? Like you have a human, there's regression analysis tools to figure out if there is any discrimination happening, if people are being paid equitably. What's your perspective on this as a trend or just a concern that HR or the employers are going to have? 
This just came up in a conversation this morning that I was having with a client. I don't think it's a trend because it's past. It's in it's place. Here, it's, yeah. it's here. So, you know, we got to deal with it. The conversation that I was having was around how do we articulate, because we're trying to compare jobs of comparable character, right? How do we articulate the nuances of this job and the people that maybe are in two different jobs and the value that one employee brings to the table when you're looking at, you know, the bona fide factors that are listed and Maybe there's something that just doesn't quite fit. Maybe it's historical knowledge of the organization. Maybe it's, you know, experience they brought with them. So just trying to be able to talk through that when there is pay discrepancies. And for this company, we had to get into the really nitty gritty of the role and of the people that were in the role to be able to really defend should something come up down the road. So, And I think kind of what we talked about earlier, it's actually some of these new legal changes that we're seeing is forcing managers to actually be managers. So now we're again, <laughs> no. we're, we're being forced to have tough conversations that are awkward and uncomfortable sometimes, but our employees need it from us and they're expecting us to be able to articulate the why behind the decisions that we are making. So I think, again, this goes back to just like we talked about with performance reviews and management leveling, management engagement with employees. Yeah. I think with pay equity, I think I don't love the way the law in Oregon was rolled out necessarily and even some of the rules around it. But I think the benevolence is there. I think it's all good hearted and it is forcing managers to be more clear. Overall, I think employees need to have more information. I think they've been without a lot of that information for too long. Employers have most of it and they will probably give the bare minimum to employees. But I think if you understand what goes into your pay, why you get paid what you do, it's an easier conversation long term. You're not going to get blindsided, opens up the dialogue. There's more trust. I think it's good overall. It lends itself to the conversations about career pathing too. So knowing like, where am I maybe in the range for our company in this job? And if I want to make more money, what do I need to do? Because employees are expecting that. I mean, we see people coming in to roles and not quite being proficient in a job and being interested in okay, well, what's the next level? So help me understand what I need to do. And that's across all industries, all the companies that we're working with. So I think it's just going to further those conversations and force managers to have them, even though they're uncomfortable. Yes. Yep. So last one for me, and then I'll open it up for you guys if you have anything that's actually a trend. So we do this report every year, what people want from work. And what we try to get across in that is that you know, as employers, we need to do better about asking our people what they want out of work, out of their pay, out of their benefits, out of leadership, all these things. Perks and benefits come up a lot because I think we do these cookie cutter programs that are undifferentiated. It's like, okay, everybody gets the same health plan, everybody gets 401k match. It's really boring, right? So you go to employer to employer, you're like, wow, cool. Benefits are paid for at 90%. I get a match. Like employers aren't really stretching themselves to do anything creative. I think that's changing. I could be wrong, but I think, and I know I've talked to Lacey about this, but I think there's some employers that are getting really creative. Like one we talked about, one of your clients was doing like student loan repayments instead of like sabbaticals. So I think like these things are coming up. And I'm curious if you think employers are going to really start to figure this out. Like, hey, Maybe we can't give them a top-notch salary, but there's wiggle room in giving flexible perks and benefits based on what they want. Are employers going to start asking that question? Like, what do you actually want? I think so. I think it would be hard to create something that's going to apply to everybody. We talked about like a menu of benefits. So maybe if you hit a threshold, there's a few things you could choose from. I think the foundational things that you talked about, 
401k, health insurance. They're boring, but they're necessary. Oh, they're necessary. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'm just wondering if there's more wiggle room to do things above and beyond that so we can differentiate ourselves as a culture. And I think there probably is. I think maybe it's looking at things that don't have a financial impact. So getting creative with the flexible work arrangements like we talked about, making sure employees have the tools to do their job. So advancing you know, internal technology to make things easier for employees, even little stuff like that, I think could be a differentiator. If it's hard to do my job and I can go do the same job someplace else and they've got better technology, better tools, better resources, that could be enticing for somebody. I think what we're going to continue to see is we have a lot of different generations in the workforce now. And what motivates one is so different than what motivates the other. So I actually see this as it's going to increase as a challenge for all of us, especially the ones making those decisions on what to do and what not to do. Because what one person thinks is a benefit somebody else might think is the norm. And I just think that there's just so many layers with that, that we need to continue to talk about that and figure out culturally in each organization, how do we get the best bang for our buck hitting everybody in the organization? Let me give you an example, controversial probably, but I'm going for it. Pay parental leave, for example. Let's say we decided tomorrow, everybody in the organization has access to pay parental leave. Well, I'm done. I'm not having any more kids. Like, <laughs> right, how am I going right. to access that benefit? So, well, what about the people that aren't having kids? Yeah, that won't have children. Right? So, I think like you do these cookie cutter programs on the surface, that sounds it's all fine and dandy, and maybe you can attract people, but what about the others that are neglected? So, that's why I love Lacey's idea. I don't know if it's your idea. It's or... not. I actually got it from Kelly, one of the Kelly, business partners so here, because I was saying I want yeah. paid parental leave because oh, I was expecting, and she's like, that's not going to help me. I want more money for continuing education. Right? I'm like, I don't want so that. So the menu of benefits is what we're describing here. I like that. So if you said like health benefits, 401k, here's the dollar amount for those. There's two grand left over. You can use it however you want. Here's a menu. That sounds like you a cool choose. idea. Yeah. yeah. Concierge services or I mean, Damn. you can Somebody get picking really, up my laundry. Yeah, or, you oh, can get yeah. creative. Oh, yeah. You really could get creative. I love that. That's good stuff. Especially, again, it goes back to kind of that, you know, work-life integration. So if you could choose a couple items on there, you know, where you're not running around aimlessly Saturday doing all these things, you know, for your family, but you could have a couple, you know, a concierge service do a couple of those things for you so you have more quality time with your family Saturday morning. That's huge. Yeah. And I think that that is something that could spread amongst all the different team members in an organization. But I love that approach to having multiple items to choose from. I think it's great. That is good stuff. Okay, so that was my list I came up with. Is there anything I missed that you think could be an actual trend? These are just me just throwing them out there based on conversations. But I'm curious if there's anything, maybe one thing, Alicia, that sticks out to you. And Lacey, grab a turn too. One thing that sticks out to me specific to another trend. Yeah, that's not on this list. What did I miss? Something you're advising your clients on. I was going to say the the generational stuff, but not just to the point of like, how do we keep them happy? But how do we have them get along with each other? So I am having lots of conversations about (laughs) frustrations that managers are having with their employees. Maybe they're in two different generations or peer to peer people can't get along. And I think it goes back to just training around communication, social and emotional intelligence, helping people understand where other people are coming from. So that's not going away. I mean, I think 2025, it's supposed to be like 
50% of the workforce is millennials or something. I feel like it's already there. Yeah, it probably is. And then we're going to have Gen Z here in the workforce. Oh, I think they already are. I just had an info interview with somebody who is, I think, 22 and still in college, but like is trying to plan to get in to an employer and asking me stuff about, like, what do I do? And I'm like, so you're 22. Oh, you're Gen Z. Holy God. Yeah. <laughs> like it's happening. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're getting old. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember being like one of the younger people here and just looking up <laughs> to these people days. that I know the good old days. But there was a mentality at that time for me, and I'll just speak personally, where I was eager to learn. And there was this willingness for people who had done it before, been in the workforce for a while to teach. And I think we got to figure out how to get that back or make that magic happen so that we can teach some of these folks coming out of school the things that they need to know that maybe they didn't get and that they can teach some of the technology and the other things that other generations would benefit from. Yeah. And I think that unfortunately, we as parents haven't always done our kiddos justice, right? So we told them they were great. We told them they were perfect. We told them how wonderful they were. And they get to work at 22 years old, 23 years old, and they don't have the flexibility to understand yeah, they are great. We wouldn't have hired them if they weren't great. But your learning curve is about to start to skyrocket. Oh, yeah. Because they think they know it all coming in, right? Yeah. And it's not all, but there's definitely a common theme Mm. amongst some of the team members coming in that it's almost like they don't respect or don't understand how much value others bring to the team as well. So there's something that's happening in some kind of disconnect that's happening in our education system, quite frankly. I think we're propping people up. People need to have failure. That's how you learn. And if we're propping up kids, I get this all the time. I'm a parent. You guys are parents. I get this. Like, you don't want your kids to fail, but... No, it hurts. But you actually take a step back (laughs) and you're like, well, the way I've learned is from failing. You don't make the same mistake twice. But yeah, we don't want our kids to fail. So by the time they enter the workforce and they've had straight A's and they've never failed in their life, and they get hit with these hard moments, we set them up for failure. Then it's not just feedback is feedback. It's not a gift. People don't have the grit. Remember the book that we read, right? So it's like, we got to get a little bit of that, I think. And I think that that might help bridge some of this gap. But training around communication and social skills and like eye contact, shaking hands, that kind of thing. And not hiding behind emails. Instant messaging, Slack, Snapchat, TikTok now, whatever, like. This is ridiculous. <laughs> it's a lot. We have a couple team members who they poke fun at me still to this day. Because you're not on anything? I'm not on anything. Your husband is. She's on LinkedIn. 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 I'm oh, on. but yeah. barely because well, I'm not even going to say it. <laughs> Somebody else might be doing some of your messaging for you. Somebody might be helping me out a little. But even some of the team members poke fun at me a little because they're like, what's Alicia going to tell me to do in this circumstance? Right. Well, hopefully I'm not telling them to do anything. Hopefully they're asking, hey, what do you think? But the reality is I'm like, you're not going to send that email, right? It's four paragraphs long. Pick up the phone. You're going to hopefully pick up the phone and you're going to build a relationship with somebody over the phone or even face-to-face sometimes. And so I think the real challenge that we will have over the course of the next several years is how are we going to bridge the communication gap? And then some of the team members are so confident in so many things they do, but yet not confident to go have a conversation. That's weird. So we have to build up their confidence in being able to communicate well with other folks and other folks with lots of different experiences. And tap the technology, like use those skills because with AI and like everything we've talked about, we're going to need that too. 
and they want to know we know that technology. So I know I <laughs> get made you? fun of a little, <laughs> you, and I'm like, can someone help me here? But the reality is I can ask for help a few times, but I got to stay up on it too, because the team members are going to respect us even more if we know what we're doing. I don't think that we have to be the gurus behind the technology. We can allow them to shine in that area because I think ultimately everyone wants to be needed somehow, some way, but we can't completely just get rid of it on the side and never participate. Yeah. Well, guys, this has been a lot of fun. Glad you popped on here. So Lacey, part of Pillow, Alicia Young, you guys are both on LinkedIn. Alicia is nowhere else, so don't even bother trying to find her <laughs> Instagram or anything like that. Lacey, you're in a couple different areas too, but... You are connected, uh, yes. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And definitely, you know, reach out to Alicia and Lacey on LinkedIn and let them know how they did on the podcast because they're a lot smarter than I am. And <laughs> I don't think so, Brandon. You guys are awesome. So thanks for coming on. Appreciate right, thanks, it. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Lace.